Welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we caught up with Carmen Aguilar-Diaz, a data journalist from Sky News, Michelle McGee, an engineer journalist from The Pudding, and Paul Bradshaw, a professor, journalist, and blogger who leads the MA in data journalism at Birmingham City University and is also a consulting data journalist with the BBC Shared Data Unit and BBC England Data Unit. Whether you are a seasoned journalist dabbling with data for the first time, or a designer or developer keen to tell interactive stories, or perhaps you're a student starting out, the move into data journalism can often feel like a winding labyrinth. How do you get started? What tools do you need to learn? What publications should you pitch? And how do you sell your story without overselling it? In this podcast, we explore how to break into the field of data journalism, drawing on the impressive mix of experience from our panel. This podcast is powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. It is an edited version from datajournalism.com's live Discord chat held in May 2022. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Paul Bradshaw, Carmen Aguilar-Diaz, and Michelle McGee. Now, without further ado, let's bring in our panel and get some answers to those questions of yours. I thought we would start out with Paul. You know, you're an academic and a data journalist working in both the classroom and the newsroom. And this is certainly a unique perspective that you have. Tell us about how the data journalism educational experience has evolved over the years and how some of your students have moved into data journalism roles and what these people seem to have in common. Well, well, it's certainly um, much more popular than it's ever been. I think it's it's um, always been, I think, for for a period of time, something that a lot of journalism students perhaps thought, well, it's it's nice to have, but I'll be okay without data journalism skills. I think that's really changed in the last few years, and it's become, um, in in my case, more popular than than other courses. Um, and it's become more international. It's also been interesting to see it pass uh, across different parts of the world. Um, this year, I've got a lot of students interested from Asia. In previous years, I've had students coming from South America, from uh, Europe. Um, so, And I think, obviously, the coronavirus has had a massive impact on the awareness of the role of data and the importance of data and how uh, news organizations invest in that in terms of the, the students that, that go on to work in the industry it really varies but it's very difficult to pick out um, a, a common feature you know we have students who come from uh, having journalism experience and that definitely helps you know if they've already got some journalism experience and they're building on that with with data skills we also have students who come with no journalism experience, really, but more from a technical background, web developers. Um, we've had those go on to news organizations like The Guardian. Um, and then we've had students come who may have recently graduated from an undergraduate course um, and, and those do really well as well. So it, it, it's very difficult to kind of pin down a particular quality because I think the, the variety of jobs 
um, is so wide. And, and actually, a variety of organizations as well. It's not just news organizations doing data journalism and telling stories with data as well. Um, you've got charities, you've got um, data visualization studios as well. So, um, so it's very difficult to say. But I, I, one thing I would say is a mix of technical skills and editorial skills. So not just having, you know, being able to do something technically, but having ideas, being able to communicate as well and vice versa. Absolutely. And I'd like to just open this up to Carmen and Michelle as well. I mean, May is the time of month where students are graduating from university or they're thinking about internships and jobs. Um, what skills do you think students need to learn while in university before graduation if they want to get into this field? And what can they do while they're studying to advance their career later on? Uh, Michelle, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, sure. Um, that's a good one. I guess I'm I'm slightly puzzled by it because I had no idea that this is the career I wanted when I was in university. So I was just kind of doing things that interested me, meeting people that I thought were interesting. But I mean, I think that always pays off no matter, I, I think especially in this field where people are coming from a lot of different backgrounds, um, just leaning into what is exciting you and making you feel passionate and interested and then connecting with those people is always a good thing. I'm not, I guess, specific skills really depends on what you're trying to do, but I'd say that applies more generally. Right. And, and Carmen, I mean, you're coming at this from being someone who was a journalist in a newsroom, not necessarily doing data and then taking a year off and going to do Paul's course. I mean, what was on your mind when you were thinking to yourself, okay, how do I transition into this field? Were you thinking I need to get a Google News Fellowship or I just need to learn the skills and, and jump in? Um, yeah, I think in my case, it was um, I worked on a data project before having actually data skills. Um, so I started as a TV reporter and I always thought that that was my my career that, that I wanted to pursue. To pursue. I really uh, liked um uh, video and live uh, covering and all of that uh, broadcast uh, media world. But when I moved to Chile, I jumped into the digital world and I really enjoyed that. And it was more, much more flexible and innovative. And while work, working in, a, in, in that uh, company, in 24-hour ch uh, channel, I worked on a, on a data project. So basically my editor came one day and uh, she asked me if I knew anything about data journalism. And I was very honest. I said, no. And she said, well, me neither. But it would be good to, to, to start working on these kind of projects. And we took an online course before, uh, how we say in Spanish, throw ourselves into the pool. And we just basically did this, uh, this project, which was um, uh, for the local elections. So we uh, built a dashboard and uh, so like uh, features, uh, stories about um, different aspects that the local government were co uh, uh, covering in, in, in Chile. But when I finished that project, I was like, yeah, this is the kind of journalism I want to do. So I started taking online courses 
And I think I was in my third online course when I just uh, talked to myself. I said, like, okay, I mean, you need to, to, to do something different here. Like, if you want to transition in your career, uh, perhaps it's a good time now to take a, a master's degree. And that's why I came to Birmingham City University to study with, with Paul Bradshaw. And yeah, I actually, I got my job in the sky uh, while I was uh, finishing my MA project. I was still like working <laughs> on that MA project when I was doing the interview. That's very encouraging to hear. Um, and Paul, I wonder what, what are some of the things that you tell your students so they can transition like Carmen does, or maybe they're coming at it from a fresh, you know, they haven't worked in the field yet. I think some of the things are, you know, take advantage of the opportunity that you have that you won't get in a newsroom. So, you know, it, when you're studying, when you're a student, you can certainly make more mistakes. Um, you can experiment more. And, and actually, employers will be really interested in that um, because they don't have the chance to, to take as many risks as you might take on your course. So don't be afraid to take risks. And one of the things to always remember about a, a good course is that your mistakes will be part of what you learn and what you talk about and in interviews as well. And the other thing is to work on projects that are going to really showcase what you can do, you know, build a portfolio, um, choose projects carefully in terms of they're going to develop you um, and they're going to build contacts and knowledge and skills, but also they're going to show something that's going to really grab the attention of people. Um, you know, that that's something you won't necessarily often get a chance to do. So um, that those would be my pieces of, of advice in terms of making the most of, of your time leading up to graduation. Right. And Michelle, I know that you created a piece yourself on GitHub visualizing every spell in the Harry Potter books, and you sent that on to the pudding. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that project and how that kind of helped you build a relationship with them and eventually maybe even get a job with them? Yeah, I, I was a software engineer um, and thinking about transitioning careers because it wasn't feeling quite aligned with my interests. And I sort of discovered this the world of data journalism through several publications, including The Pudding was one that I was admiring. Um, and I sort of set out to just emulate the things that I thought were cool. Uh, and so, and on topics that were fun and interesting to me. So this was very much like a learning project that I was using to try to, you know, replicate various things that I had seen that I thought were interesting. So it was about Harry Potter, which was fun. And I worked on this piece for maybe a month or so, um, learned a lot of things. And then I, um, I was, I'm a, I was a patron of the pudding. So on Patreon and so they have this Slack channel, um, of all the people who are patrons and the pudding team is on there. So I, I reached out to a member of the, the pudding team at the time. And I just asked for feedback and like, what do you think of this? Like, how could it be better? Um, which was a little nerve wracking. Cause at the time I sort of saw them as like, sort of celebrities because I really admired them. Um, but that's also why I was really interested in what they thought of it. Um, so I sent it over. I said, this is my first project. Like, you know, I, and I, I kind of had confidence that they would 
they would be nice, but constructive. And yeah, the person I sent it to gave me some feedback and was really nice and generous and, and also made it clear like, Oh, you should pitch a story to the pudding. If if you want, we're always accepting pitches. So eventually I, that that was sort of our first connection. And I later pitched a story to this person, worked, worked with, with them and they later offered me a full-time job like a year and a half later. And so I was able to directly reach out to someone I admired and form a connection. And yeah, in the end, all of that is basically why I have my current job. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So projects work basically, <laughs> or starting out with a project and then kind of feeling your way through it and getting some feedback from people who are kind of at the top of their game. I mean, I, we all love the pudding and it still feels like, yeah, they are celebrities, right? Um, but I wonder, Michelle, can you just tell us a little bit about your coding experience? Like, what did you, what languages did you have, what, like, as you joined Axios and then the pudding? And what do you, what do you have now? Like, what did you have to teach yourself? Yeah, so I was definitely coming in with a pretty strong foundation, having studied computer science in uh, university. So that was helpful, although I almost none of that involved like web development. So HTML, CSS, JavaScript, I had taken one course on that that I sort of wasn't paying attention in because it didn't feel that important to me at the time. So definitely when I started to do, to try to learn more sort of web-based store, like data storytelling techniques, um, I was looking to learn a lot about the basics of web development which I had some foundation in, but I definitely needed to strengthen. And then additional sort of specific things to data viz, like, like, like D3 or other libraries like that, and just sort of the techniques of how you think about the, the specific way you do data viz in web development. So anyway, I, I did have a lot to learn, although I had that strong foundation and, um, yeah, there there are so many. Luckily, there are so many resources that are really great for self teaching. Um, I some uh, Amelia Amelia Wattenberger, who you probably have heard of because she's also sort of a celebrity, uh, makes some of my favorite blog posts and tutorials on DataViz and web development tools and things like D three. Um, so I, I I really, especially in the early times, I. I had those open <laughs> in tabs like all the time and was learning a lot from those. Um, but yeah, those were sort of the main things I needed to learn, which just took a lot of practice and time and to get comfortable with it. Great. And I guess one thing that I find interesting, Carmen, is that you kind of moved from that, from general news, it seems, into... TV and digital at Sky. And I wonder what were some of the things that you learned in Paul's program that kind of helped you navigate your way in the newsroom and kind of build relationships and, and help you kind of integrate and um, yeah, just be a part of different projects that maybe you wouldn't be able to get, be, be a part of ordinarily. I basically built my uh, whole strategy in the sky based on Paul's course. So there's a lot of things to say here. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm not a technical, like my background wasn't uh, like technical like Michelle. So I come from a journalistic background. 
And at the beginning, um, before joining uh, uh, the course, uh, the master pivot table was an advanced method for me. And now I'm uh, working with R every single day. So even if people, they don't have like this technical background or they think that they are bad with maths and with Excel and with coding, um, believe me, you can you can achieve that as well. Um, and in terms of how how to make myself like valuable in in the sky, um, so I when I joined the sky, I was the first data journalist and um, working there. So I I had a big challenge because I needed to to show to sky what data journalism is and how it adds value to to their traditional uh, reporting. So one of the th- and I was the only person working there. So um, one of the the thing I based my strategy on was collaborating. So trying to work with other reporters, with designers, with developers, uh, to find and uncover new stories that they they might be it it might be difficult for for them to do it without me and. Working together, we can uh, we could um, uh, publish stories that it has a big impact on 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 the sky. And another element was also visualizations as well. So uh, editors are very they, they want visual elements. So having my skills uh, with data visualization, we could also like create like make the, make the stories and working in storytelling uh, techniques that are more visual. So I'm I'm very proud now that the team is not just only me. So we are a growing team of four uh, people in in the data department, and we are working uh, across uh, the newsroom. We are working for broadcast, for social media, and for digital as well. Interesting to hear, uh, yeah, how that's set up. Um, and I'm curious, like, what we datajournalism.com did a survey looking at collaboration, and the sweet spot was kind of two to five a team of two to five in a newsroom. And I'm wondering, and like they said, having said that, a lot of journalists are going solo and doing their own thing. And um, there were some bigger collaborations out there, but it seemed like two to five felt like the most efficient, or it seemed to be that was what people, what different news organizations were pursuing. And I wondered if if you guys could shed your experience on that. And does that feel like the right amount of people, or does it just depend on what org what organization you're in and what the resources are? I think it depends on the organization and it depends also on the project as well. I would say like, yes, two to five, it's it's perfect. But also what we are looking is a diversity of skills. So we don't want five people with the same profile. So you want uh, five people with but with a diversity of skills because then you can collaborate and each of them can uh, can input to the project and then you can have a much better project than just having people in the session doing the same the same thing. And Michelle, like, how do you guys work at the pudding collaboratively? I mean, you are a journalist and an engineer. At least that's what your title refers to you to. So, uh, how do you work with with different teams, or is it more you solo? Yeah, it can really vary. So, on our editorial projects, we have four people who are sort of full-time makers on essays that go on the pudding. Um, And so the collaboration can really vary from 
Um, like I have a project right now that I'm working on with another member of the team. So there are two of us and that's kind of a nice, I don't know, that would probably be the maximum that I would say of, of makers working on a project. Cause we, we typically like to have people own a lot of parts of the process, but having two people and splitting that up or working together can, can also be, be nice. Um, we, we definitely do projects where people work solo and collaborate more in the form of getting feedback and doing small working groups with people on the team and hearing what people think of it. Um, but sort of doing more of the implementation themselves. And then we do a lot of projects with freelancers who pitch stories to us and we sort of collaborate with them depending on their skills. So sometimes someone will pitch something and say, okay, I can, I can write this, I can do the data analysis, but I need help with the front end development. Or they might say, I can do the front end development, but I need help with the design or things like that. So we'll then pair someone, usually one person from the team with them to who sort of complements their skills to work on the project with them. I think it's really important to emphasize as well that um, collaboration has to be for a reason. And you will hear about the really good projects where there has been collaboration because you need a designer, you need a developer, you need a journalist that's doing interviews as well as data analysis. Um, and you might need specialist knowledge and specialist contacts. But it's easy to do a data journalism project on your own as well. You know, you don't necessarily need that infrastructure, that support. Um, you can do great stories that don't have fantastic visuals and interaction and, you know, um, all that. So um, I, I, all the great stories about data journalism are often about the spectacular projects that are resource intensive, but it, it is really important to emphasize the simple stuff that you can do as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the next things I'd like to talk about is ideas and pitching. Um, I wonder if there's any advice anyone has, uh, Carmen or Paul or Michelle, for how do you pitch an editor? Um, and sometimes those editors are not very data literate or they're a bit afraid or they want to know what the top line or the headline is going to be in advance. And you haven't really dug through a data set to know exactly or they want something predictive that you can't necessarily give them. How do you grapple with that? After the pandemic, I would say that editors are more interested in a data story than ever before. <laughs> and because, or at least this is my experience, data story has been very successful in the sky. So um, editors are very willing to, to get data stories. So the problem is what you say, like how to manage expectations in terms of the time that you need to build that data story and the resources that you need. And I don't have a magic formula for that. But um, something that I learned from working with developers is try to budget a bit more time that you actually think that you will need uh, for your story. And the, the, the time that you can, the extra time that you can budget is, it depends on, on the story and the project that you're working. Because if you're working on a month-long project, so it probably you can have an extra two or three days. But if you're working on a reactive uh, story and uh, they need to be published by the, the following day so you probably you can squeeze like a few hours but not an extra day um, and that is the most difficult difficult part 
all, did you want to jump in here about ideas and what kind of advice you give your students? Sure, yeah. I, I think my students would probably tell you that the, the most frequent uh, thing I'm, I will say to them is, tell it me in one sentence, you know, what's happening. Don't tell me about what you're going to do. And um, that's something that's quite easy to get um, excited about as a data journalist. I'm going to do this with this data set. The editor doesn't care. The editor cares what's going to come at the end of that. What's the result? What's the story? And, and why that matters. So who is affected? Um, what's the human dimension of your story? Um, so always, always kind of focus on, okay, it might be technically impressive and exciting as a process. But at the end of that whole process, are you going to have something that um, someone in the street is going to be surprised by? Is it going to be something that, um, that tells us something new? Is it going to be something that shines a spotlight on important issues that tells us the scale of a problem or that something is getting worse or getting better? Um, you know, keep it really simple. Who is doing what? What is happening? Sound advice there. Uh, Michelle? Yeah, I definitely plus one to that point about trying to articulate it in one sentence. I think that's often such a good technique for sort of even evaluating for yourself if this is an interesting idea. I often try to like just explain it to someone um, concisely and see just how it feels to even articulate what is this about and taking it from a bunch of thoughts in your head to like one sentence that sort of captures the core reason this is interesting. And so that, and that obviously a important thing to communicate in a pitch. Um, I think the other thing I would say, especially, I mean, th this is sort of coming more from my experience with reading pitches for the pudding where we're getting pitches from anyone from just like literally any any person who wants to send it to us to like seasoned journalists um but one thing that i often feel like is sometimes lacking in in the pitches we receive is um if they're like sort of showing proof if you if you can like if there's if there's low hanging things you can do to either sort of prototype the idea um do some of the initial data analysis to see if this is actually interesting. Um, obviously, there are things that will take lots of time and you sort of need buy-in before you invest that time. But taking that initiative to just do those things and start getting your hands dirty in it um, is great. I always want to see like, okay, great, you're going to show this visually, but like how? Like, do you have just a sketch of that? Or it can be really easy little stuff. Interesting. Um, we actually do have a question in the general chat uh, from Karthik. He's asking, what challenges have you or your team faced while working on collaborative projects and how do you handle it? I think on the, on the, with the pudding, we sometimes we have some sort of unique challenges, like the whole company is very small. And so there's a lot of structure that sort of needs to be created from scratch for especially when we're starting new collaborations with freelancers um, who come in and, like I was saying, have a specific skill set and we're sort of pairing with them. So I think sometimes there can be challenges there. One, in just defining, um, making, making it clear what everyone's domain is and what everyone's role is in the project, as that changes quite often, like project to project. 
um, and making sure we have sort of the right number of people and people are covering the right roles and that everyone knows what they're responsible for. Uh, that can sometimes be a challenge, but is it, but obviously talking about that upfront um, in detail and sort of knowing when we might reach moments of ambiguity can be really helpful for that. And then, yeah, I think the other thing that's hard is with working with freelancers and on the pudding side, sometimes because the pudding is not, there's not a lot of urgency, like we're not creating news. Uh, we're creating things that are sort of just interesting all the time and don't really have a clear sort of time urgency to them for publishing. Um, especially when you're collaborating with multiple people, figuring out like, when do we, like, what's the deadline? <laughs> How can we create a deadline that like feels real, but also is like respectful of other people's time and, and respectful of the, the freelancers time, especially we work with a lot of people who have full-time jobs and are working on this on the side. So I think timelines can be, can be a challenge for us. Time, timing is also one of the of the problem because collaborating is it involves much more work, but then it's 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 more difficult than when than if you're working alone in a story and um, you have to deal with other people. But yes, and I think the way that we are solving that is um, so you always have an editor, and that editor is putting the deadline and try to check to do all the checkups uh, as well. I just wonder um, what all of your thoughts are on the different coding languages and tools that um, don't necessarily require code that you could not live without in your day-to-day -day jobs. Personally, I could not live without the, or <laughs> that feels a little dramatic, but I'll go with it. I could not live without the uh, Svelte JavaScript framework, which is what our team has sort of fallen in love with and really enjoyed using. Um, it's basically it's just a it's basically just a flavor of of JavaScript that makes it really really readable and I think really easy a lot easier to reason about and it specifically has a lot of features that are really nice for data viz so if you haven't checked it out I would recommend that I use it a lot I use every almost every day um, R on Excel and I also know Python but I I wouldn't say. For me, it's not like I, I couldn't live without these languages. It's the other way around. It's like, which language or which tool allow me to, to do the story that I, I'm, I want? And for instance, uh, for a story that I wanted to do, I had to learn QGIS. And I just um, I took a, a tutorial and, and took a problem <laughs> to solve it and, and learned uh, QGIS. Um, before trying to do the story that I wanted to do in the sky. Yeah, so I'd say it's quite difficult to think of a tool that I, I couldn't live without. Um, it's difficult to, to do a story without using spreadsheets at all. Um, I think spreadsheets, whether that's Excel or Google Sheets or something else, um, that's, that's a, a pretty core skill to use. Um, OpenRefine has been very useful very often, but then I can go for long periods without using it. That's a data cleaning tool. Um, Outwit Hub is a very useful tool for scraping, for kind of um, basic level scraping. Um, but again, I can go for long periods without using that. Um, 
And if I didn't have R, I would use Python. If I didn't have Python, I would use JavaScript. If I didn't have JavaScript, I would use command line or whatever. I think there's always another way of achieving the same kind of results as Carmen hints at. Um, you kind of adapt to the particular problem. But probably the one tool, I think, is the telephone. You know, you need a telephone <laughs> to do your job. You need to speak to people and 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 find out the human impact as well as, you know, once you found out the, the numbers, then you need to find out why those numbers matter. And off the back of that, Paul, I wonder if you could sort of elaborate on interviewing your data and interviewing maybe the experts or even the expert journalists working in that. Like, why is that important? And how do you recommend students who are new to this go about it or even more experienced journalists who, who are new to data? Well, I guess I would always recommend treating data as a source in the same way as you would treat a human source. Um, data can be biased in the same way. It can be collected for a particular purpose. Um, and I would be just as skeptical uh, of the data as you are of, of humans. And um, um, so when you interview your data, it might tell you something, but um, ultimately you're relying on First of all, something being measured in the first place. There are lots of blind spots in data um, that reflects power imbalances in society. Um, and, um, and then I would speak to people who are involved in that particular sector, not just experts, but people who work in that field, um, people who are responsible for that field, and try and get a, an overarching view of that system um so um and and sometimes you get tensions um I, I worked on a story a few years ago on unsolved crime and we identified particular police forces that had the highest levels of unsolved crime and when we contacted those forces for a response they turned around and said your figures are wrong um and that's not the only time that that's happened and you need to be able to go back and say, okay, please explain how. Um, and that took quite a while of going back and forth. And ultimately, what they really meant was, you're not looking at the numbers that we want you to look at. Um, and our numbers weren't wrong. Our numbers were right. Um, and in fact, um, the, the police forces later you know, accepted that. But you will get involved situations where sometimes you have to have the confidence in your analysis and sometimes you have to accept um i can think of another story where we were looking at um at, at, um clinics for treating a particular health condition and we discovered that the data that we had was incomplete that, that there were other clinics that weren't included and so we had to kind of revise our story and and change what we were doing so so you kind of you're trying to build as as accurate a picture as possible from as many different sources as possible, and that's data, different sources of data if possible, different human sources as well, and trying to judge how reliable those each of those sources is. So if someone says your data is wrong, try to get them to explain how. If they can't, then okay, that's not very helpful. Um, so yeah, you're trying to get an accurate picture and I would definitely recommend, you know, talking about 
power and the role of power in data and what's measured and what's not. And there's a book called Data Feminism, which is free online, which is fantastic for exploring those issues, um, not just around gender, although it's called data feminism, but just around um, all sorts of power relations. Um, Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, again, although that is about gender, it's relevant to all sectors or all power relations as well. And um, um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges for data journalists is seeing the things that aren't measured rather than just focusing on the data that's available and, and easily accessible. Yeah, someone saying your numbers are wrong, I can imagine is probably a data journalist's worst nightmare in a way. But that's why documenting a data diary is really important, right? And I wonder, Paul, do you how do you teach your students to sort of document everything that they're doing? Or since if someone does come back to them, they can they know they're fact checked and this is accurate. Well, well, this is where I think notebooks are very useful, and this is where you probably start to hit some of the limitations of spreadsheets alone. Um, with a spreadsheet, it's very difficult, or it's more difficult for someone else to see how you've arrived at the conclusions that, that you have reached. Um, with a notebook, an R notebook, or a Python notebook, or a JavaScript notebook, um, you have your code, first of all, which actually people can rerun and it, and it shows the steps of the analysis that you've performed and the data sources that you've used. Um, but you can also add a narrative that explains what's happening and why you're doing it. So I always um, use notebooks to, uh, to teach my students and I, and I encourage my students very early on to use notebooks as a way of um, making it easier for them to explain to others. Uh, but also, it's it's very useful for yourself to when you come back to a project, um, and and you, you're trying to remember how you did what you did. So, um, so yeah, it's called uh, literate programming, and it's it, I think that transparency is a really important part of data journalism. If you look on GitHub for uh, data journalist projects on GitHub, you'll often find notebooks and scripts that help you to see what they've done. And um, Paul already mentioned quite a couple of interesting, useful books out there. But I wonder, you know, since 70% of people in the field of data journalism learn by themselves, what other resources do you recommend, Carmen or, and, and Michelle? And as well as Paul, if you want to jump in. I would say also, like, not just relying on um, books, but also going to uh, tutorials um, in Twitter account, following people that are um, that they are working as a data journalist or they are like a uh, trainer or, or professor in data journalism as well. Um, if you attend uh, attending conferences, it's a good way also to um, to meet people in, in the field and to uh, attend some of the training sessions as well. Um, yeah, I think it also depends on what the skills you are trying to, to build. Yeah, I... I agree that it, it it definitely depends on what you want to learn, but I think I can speak more to the realm of um, sort of coding and design skills, um, which Google is like super great because there are so many great blog posts. And especially if you're just starting, there's definitely someone else who has already asked the same question that you have. Um, and so just learning how to find those answers and they're, 
so many resources just a Google away, which is really nice. Um, I mentioned Amelia's blog posts and tutorials. Those are some of my favorites. Um, Amelia Wattenberger. And we've got some good resources on our, our, our website at pudding, pudding.cool slash resources. If you're interested in making stuff sort of in the vein of, of the pudding um, or sort of web interactives, we have lots of tutorial blog posts and videos too, which is, was kind of my favorite, one of my favorite ways to, uh, self-teach when I was starting. I, that we, they, they have this series up there of Russell coding, a making a whole project start to finish. So from the idea to the data analysis, to the narrative, to the, um, development of it. So I, I want, I studied that for sure. Um, and there are lots of good resources there on on the website. And I guess generally, yeah, for me, it was just like finding things that I liked and then sort of studying them and seeing what was behind them and then looking for my learnings there. Um, so those are those are all people and things that I admired. And that's why I sort of looked there. Yeah, I, I would definitely second that um, putting resources page there's some really good stuff there about storytelling and, and scrolly telling and, and the technical side of things as well um the, the um there are a lot of books in this area and i think one thing to to point out is um don't get overwhelmed with, with how much information there is out there and don't expect yourself to learn everything kind of pick the area that you're interested in so if you're interested in visualization um, the Wall Street Journal Guide to Infographics is is a really good book, really nice readable book. Um, if you're interested in the analysis, uh, Jonathan Stray has written a, a free book called The Curious Journalist's Guide to Data, which is really good. Um, there are loads of really good books on statistics. How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Hoff is a classic, very quick to read. Um, the Tiger That Isn't was written by a couple of people involved in a radio show called More or Less. And I would really recommend More or Less as well, which you can find as a podcast as well. It's journalists talking about numbers in the news. Um, not only is it great about numbers, but it's also a really good example of hearing how a journalist tells a data story through audio, um, which you don't get many examples of. So you, you learn a lot about the storytelling. Um, and I was hoping Carmen would recommend my books. Um, so there's, um, I've written a few books about data journalism, which, um, which hopefully will be useful as well. And you can also read some of Paul's thoughts as well on his blog, right, Paul, where you link to a lot of your resources. That's true, yes. And I have been sharing a lot of um, video, uh, videos from, from the course, actually, in the last few months, which were recorded during the pandemic so there's there's loads of videos there and there should be quite a few coming out in the next few months as well and paul is also writing a long read for us so look out for that too <laughs> but anyway um thank you all for joining us today uh on conversations with data our live discord chat i'm afraid this is all we've got time for um, but you can look out for our newsletter in your inbox where you'll find the link to the podcast thank you all um Carmen, Paul, and Michelle for coming on today and sharing your experience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is great. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? 
You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Conversations with Data is an initiative by datajournalism.com, powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.